Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. The man known as Dr. Seuss grew up in Springfield, Mass., drawing inspiration from the local zoo and his German roots, and telling tall tales, turning minnows into whales. So it was very influential in sort of shaping, you know, the artist he would later become. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll learn about how our region shaped the artist. Plus, we'll meet youth activists drawing attention to climate change. It's going to severely affect a lot of people, especially poor people and people of color, so that's why I'm here today to stand up for the people who are most in need. A new book explores the history of a mill town from the point of view of everyday objects. You know, you often hear the old cliche, if walls could talk, well, <laughs> now they can, and so be careful what you say. <laughs> Finally, we'll meet a modern-day troubadour in one-man band. I call it Swamp Yankee music. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. And we're going to start with news about the region's churning energy mix as states try to get more renewable power while still relying heavily on natural gas. In Rhode Island, the developer of an 84-turbine wind farm, Vineyard Wind, has announced that they're changing the layout of the farm to reduce its impact on fishermen. Eric Stevens, the company's chief development officer, says the decision comes after a number of discussions with concerned squid fishermen. These turbines are closest to uh, an important squid fishing area that's further to the north. And also, these turbines are the closest to a an area that is frequently transited by fishing vessels. So by removing these turbines, we were able to address all these different issues. Fishermen applaud the decision, but say the overall orientation of the massive wind farm isn't conducive to traditional fishing routes. Meanwhile, in Massachusetts, the Department of Public Utilities has approved a 20-year contract for the state's largest utilities to purchase hydroelectric power from Quebec. But opponents are likely to appeal the decision. Dan Dolan, head of the New England Power Generators Association, says the deal doesn't require Hydro-Quebec to produce any additional clean energy. Any hopes that this would help reduce greenhouse gas emissions will be little more than an accounting trick for Massachusetts. A proposed transmission line that would deliver the hydropower through Maine is still being debated. As you can see, plans to get renewable power here face pushback from opponents, but so do projects that would expand New England's dominant fuel source, natural gas. It now accounts for 40 percent of electric energy in the region, and over the last decade or so, New England has made big investments in gas infrastructure. Proponents call natural gas a lower-cost fuel with a lower carbon footprint that can be a bridge source of power while the region develops more renewables. But many environmentalists don't see it that way. Worries about fracking for gas in distant states, about pipelines cutting through pristine forests, and about the leakage of methane have fired up opponents. In Rhode Island, regulators have rejected a proposal to build a gas and oil-fired plant in Burlville, 
This comes at the same time as the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection is deciding whether to uphold or revoke a permit for a natural gas compressor station in the town of Weymouth. So what do these two decisions mean for the energy mix in our region? Here with us now is Barbara Moran. She's senior editor for WBUR's environmental vertical, Earthwile. Barbara, welcome back to Next. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks, John. And Tim Faulkner is here. He's senior reporter for Eco RI News. Tim, welcome to Next. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Tim, let's start in Burlville. Remind us about the proposal for that power plant there. Well, that was a 1,000-megawatt natural gas and diesel fuel power plant that was proposed for a rural part of Rhode Island. And it was proposed about three and a half years ago, as, as, you, as you mentioned, as sort of a bridge fuel power plant that would be a bridge to more renewable energy. And that's how the governor promoted it when it was announced. And it pretty much from the beginning received a lot of you know pushback from the community and then from the state. And, and eventually, after going through a, a very long application process, it was denied by the Energy Facility Siting Board last week. Why all the opposition from the start? What were they What were they mostly concerned about? I think there were a number of things. The folks in the community of Burrville, they already have a power plant of a medium-sized natural gas power plant. They have a large compressor station there that also went through an expansion recently. So there were some folks in the community that I think had a really strong sense of the environmental impact of some of these projects. And, you know, as you know, a lot of them were happening across New England. So... They raised awareness. They got a lot of community support. I think they were able to uh, convince a lot of the community leaders to see that these plants were probably more of a burden on the community than they were, you know, a support, you know, economically. So I think that kind of grassroots pushback right from the start, I think, created a lot of awareness that eventually made this a really difficult project to approve. But but the the rejection of this proposal really was about whether or not it was it was necessary uh, for the energy mix, not so much just the complaints from locals. Right. Yeah, that was the thing. They never really got to the environmental issues, which was mm. one of the big things that the board had to decide. They just uh, right off the bat looked at the need, whether or not it was needed for the energy mix in the future. And when the application was submitted in the end of 2013, According to a lot of the you know, pr- um, projections and reports for the region, looked like a power plant like this might be a nice fit. But I think um, because the project took so long and a lot more renewable energy and energy efficiency and even things like uh, backup battery storage were coming online, it really made a power plant of this size look like it didn't have much of a future. So meanwhile, in Massachusetts, there's a debate about whether or not to build a compressor in Weymouth. Barbara, maybe you can tell our listeners, first of all, what exactly is a compressor? Yes, my favorite uh, my favorite question. <laughs> so um, interstate pipelines for natural gas go, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles. And every 50 or miles or so, there's a compressor station, which kind of gives the gas a boost so it can continue to have pressure to go up the pipeline. So a compressor station is sort of a big industrial facility with turbines that um, sort of increase the gas pressure to give it a boost up the pipeline. How far along is this project in development? 
Well, this um, has been going on for a few years now, and it's it's sort of a long permitting process to, to make it go through. So it's been kind of underworks for a few years now. How do residents there feel about it? Is it sort of like what the folks in Rhode Island were saying about this gas-fired power plant? Well, it's sort of the same and sort of a flip. The concerns from citizens came mostly about safety, right? So uh, for air quality safety, because the um, natural gas compressor station would emit methane, um, both sort of regularly and also during these blowdowns where it has to release pressure, it releases a lot of methane and other chemicals that are in frac gas into the air. And this is in an area that already has higher levels of respiratory disease and pediatric asthma than other areas. So there's that health concern. And there's also a safety concern because these stations um, explode sometimes or give off a lot of gas that can explode. And there was um, an explosion near a compressor station in Michigan just in January. So there's worries about that happening and, um, you know, evacuation procedures and that kind of stuff. Um, So those safety concerns came up from the local um, neighborhood folks. But then there's the other larger concern about um, whether we should be building more natural gas infrastructure in Massachusetts or New England, that building this will just prolong our, you know, attachment to fossil fuels when we should be, you know, getting rid of this bridge or getting over this bridge and going to um, solar and wind faster. I want to ask you both about that. And how much of the controversy around projects like this really stems from that larger question? When people say, I don't want a compressor or I don't want a new power plant, it may have to do with the environmental concerns or the local impacts. But it also does have to do with this bigger question. Do do you think, Barbara, that that the opposition to a a plan like this is really coming from people who say, let's get more into renewables already and just get off of gas? Yeah, well, my sense with this particular project is that it came originally from uh, safety and pollution concerns from the neighborhood, but that that became quickly absorbed into this uh, this larger discussion about fossil fuels. So in this project, it came from that, but there is a very active movement in Massachusetts and New England to get rid of natural gas wherever possible and not build more infrastructure. Tim, what do you think about that question? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that the the question about the the bigger you know pollution and energy issues were definitely played a big role, especially climate change. I think that was a big concern. This the power plant in Rhode Island would have been the largest emitter of carbon dioxide in the state had it um, had it been been approved and built. So, I think there was that local concern that the state would not be able to meet its um, emission reduction goals, and so. You know, I think that kind of was almost like a, a statewide issue that I think drew a lot of people to oppose this project. Barbara, you've been covering the closure of the last big coal-fired plant in the region and, mm-hmm. of course, the, the closure of the Pilgrim nuclear power mm-hmm. plant there as well. What does all this tell you about the energy mix right now? If it's hard to get new natural gas projects cited and we're closing down some of the existing fossil fuel or nuclear plants, what does it mean for our energy mix in the in the near term? Well, I think we've got enough energy to keep going in in the, the short term. The question is more about uh, are we going to be able to meet our greenhouse gas reduction goals with the current energy mix? And that is probably not the case using as much natural gas as we're using now. And Tim, what do you see as the future for the energy mix here in, in your state and also across New England? Well, it definitely looks like it's, go- it's changing, and, and rapidly, and a lot of it has to do with offshore wind. I mean, there's mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of megawatts 
of offshore wind projects that are close to being approved or approved already. And all the states from New York up to Maine are really aggressively wanting to build projects off the coast of New England. So uh, there's a lot of investment going on. Projects are being announced every day. So it looks pretty clear that we're going to be seeing a lot more renewable energy and probably a lot less need for as many natural gas and other fossil fuel plants. So I think it's going to change pretty dramatically in the next 10 years. Barbara Moran edits Earthwhile at WBUR. Barbara, thanks so much for joining us again. I appreciate it. Thank you. Tim Faulkner, senior reporter for EcoRI News. Thank you, Tim. My pleasure, John. Coming up, we'll hear the story of a New England mill town told in poetry. But first, exploring Dr. Seuss's New England childhood. From the New England News Collaborative, this is next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Growing up reading Dr. Seuss books, like, well, just about everybody else, I imagine that they were written by someone who lived in a fantastical place filled with oddly shaped trees and strangely named animals. But it turns out that Dr. Seuss, born Theodore Geisel, actually grew up in the rather normal town of Springfield, Massachusetts. A new biography by Brian J. Jones explores how his New England upbringing and Dartmouth education shaped Geisel's work. The book is called Becoming Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel and the Making of an American Imagination. Jones told us what Geisel's childhood in Springfield was like. Theodore Geisel was born in Springfield in 1904 and is very much a product of that time. And Springfield, Massachusetts, when I was researching the book, I I always really love to go and see where people live. Sense of place is really important to me. And you can actually see a lot of Springfield still there um, that influence, it show, ends up showing up in a lot of his books later. There's a lot of interesting architecture. And the, down in the, in the cemetery, there's really interesting sculpture with a lot of stairs and a lot of pillars in it. The gunnery is still there with the, the archways and the, and the turrets on it, which looks like something out of, out of Bartholomew Cubbins. So, so there's a lot of architecture there that really influenced him and shows up in a lot of his later work. Uh, his father was the head of the park system and took him regularly to the zoo right there in Springfield. So he did have a, <laughs> he did have a sense of animals, though, as he said later, um, you know, when he started to draw them, he just put the knees where he thought they should go. He didn't actually really have a sense of anatomy. But there's a lot of Springfield that shows up in there. And it, you would really see it, especially in in his first book. And to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, uh, there is a real Mulberry Street in Springfield. It does not intersect with some of the streets they name in the book. But, you know, that's a Springfield influence there as well. When that book first came out, it just it blew out of the local bookstore the night before it even went on sale. All the locals had to get a copy of that book. So it was very influential in sort of shaping, you know, the artist he would later become. You, you quote a passage of uh, And to Think That I Saw It on Mulberry Street to help describe his childhood. And here it is. It's stop telling such outlandish tales. Stop turning minnows into whales. Uh, you write, but for Ted himself, turning minnows into whales was, was all part of the fun. Can, can you talk about that? Because it's such, a, such an interesting idea. Yeah, and actually that influenced the way he was his entire life, uh, which, which makes it as a biographer sometimes very frustrating and very fun as well. 
he always liked a good story almost more than he liked the truth a lot of the time. So a lot of times there's a little nugget of truth in a story he's telling, and he's embellished it, usually to make it funnier. He really likes the stories to be funny. But I, he really did love that telling of tales. And, and there's, a, it, he, there's a story he told quite often about why he didn't like public speaking. Uh, and the story goes that you were selling uh, Liberty bonds during World War I, and um, whoever sold the most bonds, they would, they would bring 10 boys up on stage, and they were going to be given medals by Colonel Roosevelt, the former president, Teddy Roosevelt. And in the story, he's standing out on stage with all these other boys, and Roosevelt's going down the line and pinning medals on all the boys, and gets to the end of the row, and he's out of medals, and looks at young Ted Geisel and says, you know, what the hell is this kid doing here? And hustles him off stage. Uh, for the rest of his life, Geisel would talk about how he was just mortified, how this had scarred him for life, how he hated appearing in front of crowds because of this. I couldn't find any evidence of any of that happening. I know, I know Roosevelt was there. I looked at the pictures on the front page of the paper. There's no collection of Boy Scouts there getting medals. <laughs> so, uh, so it's one of those things. But, but it's a great story. And there's enough truth in it that Roosevelt was there. Uh, he did talk about the importance of liberty bonds probably acknowledged the boys that had won them. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of details then built onto the story that are really hard to verify. But again, make for a really great story. So how do you handle that as a biographer as you try to run down the the tales, maybe tall tales told by someone who's a, a gifted, born storyteller? And probably he told those stories to all the people who, who ever knew him. So they believe those stories are true, too. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, and even in his life, he would say something like, I, I read these, you know, the these short pieces on me in the newspapers and these things that are supposed to be biographies of my life. And uh, they're full of these tall tales that usually I started myself. So he, you know, he knew he was part of the problem. What you have to do as a biographer is just keep going to the tape as much as possible. Try to, you know, like, like I did with the Roosevelt story, go to the newspaper record at the time, find out, was Roosevelt really there? That was one of the first questions I had to ask. So, you know, try to try to back it up factually as much as you can. The issue you've got with Dr. Seuss is, you know, he died 25 years ago at age eight, you know, 87. So most of his contemporaries are gone. There's, you can't talk to his, you know, his mother or his father or his sister or any, and he had no children. So there weren't a lot of people growing up with him who could verify these stories or not. So a lot of times it's trying to find out what the actual record was on where people were. But the other thing you can do with him is he tells stories countless times and you can see him adding details as he goes along and embellishing them. So if you go back far enough, a lot of times you can probably get close enough to the story. And what you finally have to do with the biographers, there's times you have to throw up your hands and just say, according to Ted at that point. (laughs) What was his time at Dartmouth College like? So his time at Dartmouth, the most important thing that happened to him at Dartmouth is he, by his senior year, became editor of Jack-O-Lantern, the, the humor magazine. Was not a fantastic student. Again, there was a lot of embellishment in his own story on how he got into Dartmouth and so on. He was very um, influenced by an English teacher there in Springfield who I think really appealed on his behalf to Dartmouth and helped get him in. And, you know, it was, in a way, it was kind of the local college. It's hard to believe now, but, like, you know, if you didn't know where you're going, you just kind of went up river to Dartmouth. You know, it's funny because somebody who came from a German-speaking family um, listened to the German language all the time, which I think is actually important in his development as as a writer and his sense of words and his sense of rhythm is growing up in a household where your aunts and uncles and your parents, everybody could speak German. He actually ends up getting only a B in German. I think the only time he ever gets an A, he has an A one semester in German. But even German courses at Dartmouth, he's getting B's and C's in. So, uh, so he's not really there to do a lot of studying. But it was really important to him from day one when he walked in. He was determined to be editor-in-chief of that humor magazine and ended up ended up being there. And that's where he really starts to 
play with the form and start developing a little bit more as an artist, as a cartoonist, and as a writer, which I think is really important. He's not just drawing. He's actually writing text pieces there at Jack-O-Lantern. When he gets out of Dartmouth, he begins a, a career as an illustrator and a, and a successful career. And I, I'm wondering about how he makes the transition from from using one part of his talent then into the work that he's so well known for today. Well, you know, it's interesting because after he leaves Dartmouth, he goes to Oxford for a year because he wants to become an English teacher and gets over to Oxford and once again has zero interest in doing really any studying, but is filling up his college notebook with drawing after drawing after drawing and meets a young woman in class uh, named Helen Palmer, who would end up being his wife, who is looking at these notebooks and says, you know, you shouldn't be out there teaching English. Somebody like you with this talent, you should be drawing for a living. And he agrees she's right and he agrees with her so much that he marries her. Uh, and they move and they move back over here and, and he's really trying to make it as a cartoonist. And it's it's hard to believe, but this is a day when you could you could make a living submitting cartoons to the New Yorker and Vanity Fair and Judge and things like that. He's trying to just find his way with these one panel cartoons. Lots of cartoons about drinking. He, people used to look for cartoons by Dr. Souse at one point. You know, he's, he's really finding his way, trying to figure out how to make a living doing this. Does end up sort of scraping into it and becomes more and more popular as he goes. And he's writing text pieces in Judge magazine. So, again, it's not just the art. It's the writing that he's learning how to do. Uh, and that's really when, he, when he's getting started. But the art, when you see these, don't necessarily still look like what we think of as Dr. Seuss. For one thing, there's a lot of people in them. Um, which we don't normally get in Dr. Seuss cartoons. What happens with him while he's making his way as a cartoonist is he ends up drawing a cartoon of a knight in bed with a dragon's head in its lap. And the the caption is, you know, darn it all, another dragon. And here I just had the place sprayed with flit, which was a bug spray at the time. Pretty good joke. But what happened was the head of the advertising firm that was doing the flit ad campaign saw that cartoon and hired him based on that cartoon to become their ad man for the Flit campaign. So for 17 years then after that, Dr. Seuss is making his living doing Flit ad campaigns. They're owned by Standard Oil, so he's doing motor oil campaigns and boat oil, things like that. But Flit is the big campaign he's doing. So that's really paying his bills while he's drawing the cartoon still and he's writing for Judge. But his contract with Standard Oil is very exclusive in the sense that he can't take a lot of other outside work. He's permitted to do some of his cartoons, but he can't do a lot of a lot of other things. And he sort of found that creatively stifling in a way. And so he was looking for other things he could do, but was restricted by that contract. Well, one of the things he was not um, restricted from doing was writing and drawing books for children. So as he always said later, you know, I'd, I'd like to be able to tell you that I got into this because I felt this compelling need to tell stories for children. And, and that would come later. But mainly he did it because there was money on the table. He was permitted under his contract to do a book for children. And so he was on an ocean voyage. Uh, they got caught in a storm and he's sitting in the bar, as he was usually inclined to do, and listening to the thrum of the engines uh, deep down in the boat. And that rhythm, that regular rhythm of the engines, he started writing words to it. And that's when he started adding, and that is a tale that no one can beat and to think that I saw, you know, working with the rhythm of the book and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street. So that's when he starts writing the, the, the verse that becomes and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street. One of the things I want to ask you about, and you, of course, have to tackle this in your biography, is his, his politics and the fact that he is in many ways a, a very problematic character. Can you talk about that complexity and, and sure. perhaps the, the political side of, of Dr. Seuss and what he truly believed in? Yeah, Dr. Seuss's own politics are very, probably today we would call them very progressive. 
um, you know, very liberal. Um, at the time, back in World War II and in the years leading up to World War II, he was drawing editorial cartoons for a very left-leaning newspaper in New York called PM. He has he has some problematic moments. Some of his really problematic moments actually come in his early advertising days, back in the twenties. But but the way he portrays Asian Americans in his World War II cartoons is is sort of consistent with every other bit of U.S. propaganda. If you look at the posters they show you at the National Archives here, they're really terrible. Um, and it's not a good look for him. And where he really should have known better, um, the one that really gets a lot of a lot of traction, it's the one people pull up and really still talk about today. He really fell hook, line and sinker for the argument that Japanese Americans should be in these camps. And it's it's a terrible look for him. And he should have known better because, as we talked about earlier, when he was a child, he was guilted by association. People were throwing rocks at him because he was German. And he was a German-American, and we were at war with Germany. Um, he was doing to Japanese-Americans what his own childhood friends had done to him. Uh, so that one's a really bad look for him. He really fell for the propaganda that was coming out of the Department of Defense on that one. In his lifetime, you know, he was asked about this, and what he said was, you know, he's, he said, I thought back then this stuff was kind of funny, and I look at it nowadays, and I'm, you know, I'm really not so sure. So I think it was something he even struggled with. But apart from that, and I'm not dismissing this, if you look at his other editorial cartoons at the time, he like he really had Charles Lindbergh's number. He did not like the anti-Semitic junk that that uh, that Lindbergh was spewing at that time. Really went after him hard. You know, really goes after the KKK. Really goes after the U.S. government, for example, when they're not issuing government contracts to African American businesses. There's a great cartoon of um, somebody sitting playing a piano and Uncle Sam standing behind him and says, you know, it sounds a lot better when you use both the black and the white keys. So so there's a lot of progressive politics going on along with some of those problems. But I, I believe he evolved over his lifetime. And I don't think you can be somebody who's writing a book like The Sneeches and not mean it. He came back to Springfield in 1986 for the town's 350th anniversary celebration. What kind of reception did he get? He was a rock star. I mean, this is the Beatles coming back to Liverpool almost. <laughs> yeah, and he hadn't been home in a long time. His father was still living there and had moved away and had to put him in a home. But he comes back to visit. And the mayor of Springfield was very clever because saw that Ted was getting a degree somewhere close by. I can't remember where, but somewhere close enough by. He said, hey, you should, you should come by Springfield. And Dr. Seuss is very serious about this. You know, he comes back and he says, I don't want to I don't want to make speeches. I don't want big dinners and receptions. I just want to enjoy you and I want to enjoy Springfield. And the mayor takes most of that to heart, does put him on a bus and kind of ferries him around town and shows him shows him the sights. But there's a great moment when he actually the bus pulls onto Mulberry Street and he steps out of that. And his wife is so shocked because he actually wants to step out of the bus. And it's just the street is just lined with hundreds and hundreds of children and teachers and librarians steps out of that bus and just I mean, the crowd goes crazy and children are pressing forward and he's trying to shake all their hands. And uh, and they all shout out, thank you, thank you, Sam, I am, at him. And uh, and he gets back on that bus, and he's really choked up. And, uh, and he kind of looks over at his wife, and he, and he mouths the words, wow. That's one of those moments in his life where it really hit him that, uh, you know, what he had done had, had mattered and made a difference. I think he knew conceptually it did. But I think that moment right there, again, being treated like the Beatles in your hometown, really, really made an impact on him. It's a really neat moment. Brian J. Jones is author of Becoming Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel, and the Making of an American Imagination. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This has been great. The environmentalist message of Dr. Seuss's The Lorax isn't lost on young climate activists in Boston. Their message, adults of the world, do something before it's too late. 
For instance, they say, look at the North Atlantic right whale, a species threatened by climate change. Two more dead whales have just been found in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, bringing the total number of dead whales found there to four in June alone. To draw attention to the whale's plight, young people from the nonprofit Our Climate depicted the endangered mammals in a giant mosaic on Boston Common using more than 1,200 individually painted tiles. WBUR's Miriam Wasser went to the event and sent us this postcard. Good morning, and welcome to Our Climate's Right Whale Mosaic. I'm Izzy Goodrich, a 15-year-old from right here in Boston. I'm Ava Harrington, I'm 17, and I live in North Reading, Massachusetts. I'm Lorenzo, I'm 14, and I'm from Boston. My name's Taya, and my age is 8. My name is Eben Bine. I am the New England Field Coordinator for Our Climate, which is a youth-led organization that advocates for climate policy. Today, we gathered over a thousand cardboard cutout tiles. This is, they're made from recycled cardboard, um, on which young artists from across Massachusetts have painted what they stand to lose to climate change. I'm drawing Fur, which is the island my family's from in um, northern Germany, and it's sinking, so I would like to keep it around. <laughs> I'm drawing people holding hands on an earth to show that we could lose the human species. I'm just about to put my painting over in the big whale, and I wrote, we need to save our earth, and I put a little earth um, in the middle. My name is Joe Carrig. I'm a seventh grade visual art teacher at Boston Latin School, and I had about 400 of my students' paintings in this project. This is Ashley, who did the earth here. Oh, this is uh, Andrew. Snow. He's got footsteps in the snow. This is Sasha's whales. And oh, this is Girls Really Poetic, Vivian. Being alive. And this is a sun over the edge of the earth with clouds. And she's just incredible visually what she does. You know, we see rising sea levels, um, melting ice caps. We're going to have a lot of water crises, especially in um, the eastern side of the world. Things like malaria might start to grow, and it's going to severely affect a lot of people, especially poorer people and people of color. So that's why I'm here today, to stand up for the people who are most in need. I think because we're going to be the next generation that has to take care of this, we're going to be the next leaders, we're going to have to be the ones to make all the difficult conversations on how we can make this work. It's important that we show up earlier rather than later because there are going to be a lot of consequences. It's a beautiful day. you got so many tourists, people from all over the place. I met a couple from Florida, I met a couple from Colorado, Philadelphia, and they see this giant art mosaic. And so naturally they get curious, and that's kind of like the best part of this, is that you have people walking by, they stop and ask what's going on, and you can educate them and inform them. When you find the one or two people that actually like listen, have to take the time to listen to you, and actually take one of your flyers, it's like such a note of confirmation. And that's the sphere we go into as fighting for climate change, is knowing that there's going to be setbacks and people like turning down on us, but there will be people turning up and saying yes to this. Coming up, we'll hear from a one-man band who calls himself the Suitcase Junket. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative, and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. 
The Quinnipiac River flows about 40 miles from central Connecticut into Long Island Sound. Its pathway winds through some of the state's deepest pockets of pollution. For decades, 19th century factories and densely populated towns poured sewage and industrial waste right into the river. But recent history has been kinder to the Quinnipiac. Conservation and environmental laws have boosted water quality, and fish and other wildlife have slowly returned. Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill recently met up with a biologist to paddle the Quinnipiac River and take a closer look. My life vest is zipped. Our paddles are ready, and Pete Picone, okay. my guide for today, is ready to cast off. With a push, our canoe begins its journey down the river. We float down a canyon of trees, paddling through columns of dappled light. Picone is on the lookout for wildlife. Now that bird there is a great crested flycatcher. Weep, weep. That one is a cavity nester. Above us fly Baltimore Orioles. We see the wings of a great blue heron fan out before us as it shoots skyward, and all along the riverbank is another bird, the spotted sandpiper. They're, they're a very identifiable bird. Yeah, there's one right there, right there. That was his call, did you hear it? There it is, right there. For a long time, wildlife on the Quinnipiac was virtually non-existent. Pollution from industry in the 19th and 20th centuries killed off fish and chased away birds. And if there's a river that needs, you know, help and attention, it's this river. But there was an upside. In the 1800s, that pollution inspired some of Connecticut's first environmental laws. And over the next century, regulation and litigation helped to clean up the river. Most recently, funding work that wrapped up this spring to remove old dams and water pipes from the river. You know, it's had a lot of challenges, and it's on its comeback, you know, and it's, we don't want to lose that comeback. We want it to get stronger and better. Conservationists say those removals open the river to migratory fish like American shad and river herring for the first time in 150 years. Today, Pecone paddles our canoe through branches and navigates around woody snags. Well, we have to be careful because there's some shallow logs. In the canoe is a hacksaw, just in case we get stuck and need to cut our way out. But today, we've been lucky. Even though there are some downed trees, we pass right on through. The river's been very friendly to us, I'll tell you. Around a bend, our canoe finds itself enveloped in a field of floating white downy puffballs. For a few seconds, it feels totally alien. Countless translucent speckles hovering and scattering light all around us. That's the uh, seed of the cottonwood tree, which cottonwoods are very common along the floodplains. This is the time of the year that it produces its seed, and uh, that's what you're seeing. Overhanging shrubs cling to nearby riverbanks. It's silky dogwood, a plant that's a great hiding spot for wood ducks and muskrats. For Pecone, the river's mystery and variety is its charm. You know, you're, you're, you're on your own. You're, you're doing your own thing. You're enjoying nature. You're, it's an adventure that every bend has something new, different. A few minutes later, our journey ends. We carefully take out our canoe, but as we walk, the river has one more surprise for us. Right there. Yeah, right there. That is a bald eagle right there. Wow. Awesome. Look at that. That is special, man. Wow. The eagle dives, powerful and fast, welcomed back by a river that's slowly returning to the way it was long before we got here. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill in Hartford.
Many polluted rivers in New England are making a comeback, and so are some of the old mills that polluted them in the first place. They're being turned into high-end lofts, artist spaces, and modernized manufacturing sites. It's this history and transformation that David Leff explores in a new book of poetry called The Breach, Voices Haunting a New England Mill Town. Leff is no stranger to this issue. He's the former deputy commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Environmental Protection, and he's lived for 30 years in one of these mill towns where manufacturing is long gone, but the mill buildings still hang precariously over the edge of the Farmington River. It's a familiar landscape. You know, um, I live in Collinsville, the old Collins Company Axe Factories in my backyard, and I've traveled throughout Connecticut and throughout New England, and uh, old mill villages have always been a fascination for me. I think they have incredible stories to tell, uh, both in terms of the larger black letter history that we read in history books and the history of individuals and families. They're very compelling sites. Why did you choose to tell the story uh, through the lens of of everyday objects, uh, a lava lamp, a typewriter, an umbrella, just things found? It's kind of a, a cliched environment when you when you go to these mill villages and you see the old brick factory and you see the river running by and the dam and the water rushing over it and the worker housing built up on the hill and then the, the executive. It's a, it, it, it has become something that we kind of you know, see all the time, we become a little numb to. And so what I wanted to do is is jumpstart people's thinking by coming up with a different way of presenting that material that would then kind of open the gates of understanding, that would enable them to see what we take for granted in a in a new way. And so I came up with, why not the objects? You know, you often hear the old cliche, if walls could talk. Well, <laughs> now they can. And so be careful what you say. <laughs> the walls are listening. They may be. So, so the people get a sense of, of what exactly this sounds like. Maybe you can do a, a brief reading from the book. Do you have something for sure, us? Sure, sure. Um, I'm going to read a, uh, a poem about the wood stove in back of the local hardware store. Harold Oak Stove, number 16. Paunchy middle-aged guys better not call me pot-bellied. I'm cylindrical, over five feet tall from leg to shiny nickel finial. Made by O.G. Thomas of Taunton, Mass., I have a goodly 16-inch fire pot. Been back of Rockwood Falls hardware since Christ was a corporal. Old-timers gather round to smoke and swap lies even in summer, though there are more when I'm stoked to ward off the cold. A few pull up an old nail keg, but most stand on the squeaky hardwood floor, talking with their hands as sure as their voices. Always been weather and sports, a few laughs. Never seen nothing like the resentment over the factory, glowing hotter than any cherry coal I ever held. Some say it's fickle markets or foreign exchange rates what killed the company. You got your conspiracy types and backseat drivers who knew Jenkins should have bought Merriam's Steel Box or that little eyelet company over Waterbury Way making drawn metal lamp parts. Then there's the morning, Monday morning quarterbacks whose 2020 hindsight saw statistical process control, computer-aided design, or a continuous wire casting machine as saviors. Ever heard none of it before. Now everyone's an Edison. I love the fact that uh, he's made in Taunton, Mass. For some reason, yeah. Well, it it just seemed like the perfect stove to have. Uh, you know, another New England 
manufacturing town. And that's, you know, that's, they traded all, you know, they, they had one product and they were known for that product, but they bought other products to make what they, what they produced. One of the things that you're grappling with, of course, is, is a more current issue at so many of these mills and something that you grappled with when you worked at the Department of Environmental Protection. Uh, environmental concerns like contamination in groundwater, cancer clusters. Um, how did you want to, to think and talk about that issue from your lived experience in this book? Well, when I worked at DEP, confronted these issues, even though my bailiwick was mostly parks, forests, fisheries, and wildlife. But this was an issue that I confronted on occasion, this groundwater contamination from an old factory. And you hear not only those voices that are upset about the contamination, but you hear from the owners. You hear from people who held jobs at the factory. There's a variety of voices that come to you. And so what I wanted to do was present all that complete range of voices, the complexity that we spoke about earlier, and not just, oh, isn't it horrible and it's, it's all bad and it's terrible. Well, groundwater contamination is terrible, but there's a whole history behind how it happened and why it happened and changes in regulation. I just didn't want to present you know, the, the regulator point of view. I wanted you know, both the people who have benefited from the fact that there was contamination, easy to throw things out the door, as well as those who were suffering from it. The, the wife of a factory owner poses an interesting question in your book. She asks, how do you comply with regulations that didn't exist in the 1950s and the 1970s? And it, it is an important question to ask. That said, there, there is some thought that, that people perhaps starting in the 1880s should have known better. How, how, how do you think about that well, question? It, 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 it's a, it is a reasonable question and it's a very hard one to answer. You know, they, you could follow all the rules and still wind up with contaminated groundwater because the, the, both the public, the government and industry perception were, was very different. doesn't mean that there shouldn't be responsibility for those who benefited. Uh, but uh, that's a very reasonable question for someone to ask. But there just there simply was not the consciousness of this. Now, you might say, well, they should have known better. Uh, but, um, you know, it's, it's hard for us with the knowledge that we have now about contamination and parts per billion, for God's sake, to really judge those who came earlier, even though they have to be held responsible. Hmm. David Leff is former deputy commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Environmental Protection. He's the author of several books, but also this new one, The Breach, Voices Haunting a New England Mill Town. David, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. For more about how our industrial past influences our region in the present, check out the video of our live event at the International Festival of Arts and Ideas at nextnewengland.org. We'll be sharing a portion of that conversation on Next in the coming weeks. Matt Lorenz knows something about making the most of old things. He's a touring musician from Western Massachusetts who surrounds himself with homemade gadgets and gizmos. It's part of what makes his unique sound as the one-man band, The Suitcase Junket. New England Public Radio's Karen Brown introduces us to this old-fashioned troubadour. To say Matt Lorenz doesn't like to waste things is an understatement. He takes old guitar frets and hammers them into earrings. He converted a box of junk into an instrument. It's a, basically an old cheese box that I had full of 
bones and silverware. The bottom symbol is the wooden box. The top symbol is all these objects hanging off of an old 8-millimeter film reel. On stage, Lorenz wears ratty yellow loafers he got used 15 years ago. And his guitar, he found in a dumpster. It had this weird, buzzy, growly sound. It only sounded good in an open tuning. And I, you know, sort of fell in love with the limitations of it. In short, Matt Lorenz is highly resourceful in music and in life. I met him at his farmhouse in Leverett, Massachusetts. He was on break from touring, putting logs into an outdoor oven so he could boil sap into maple syrup. You keep a boil going, so you feed the fire from this side, and it's, it's fierce right now. But despite his bohemian setup, Lorenz is no ragtag indie musician. He's signed with Northampton record label Signature Sounds, plays about 200 gigs a year, has a publicist, a booking agent. He's just released his seventh album called Mean Dog Trampoline. Yet even that is a product of his offbeat recycling methods, including lyrics that came from a homebuyer's workshop he once attended. I found notes from it, and they were completely incoherent. It, you know, it looked like I was mostly drawing little imaginary creatures and writing down the occasional word, you know, without any reference points on the page. But being someone who doesn't like to see things go to waste, even, you know, my own idiot <laughs> scribblings, I scraped them together into a tune. But the mean dog and the trampoline, which is sort of the chorus of that song, are two things that insurance companies apparently really don't like you to have. Lorenz has been making music since he was a child in southern Vermont, taking piano, violin, and saxophone lessons. At Hampshire College, he created a major around experimental music. He spent a few years working on farms, painting houses, and playing in bands on the side. By 2009, he was making a living as a solo performer. His latest incarnation is called The Suitcase Junket, a nod to his sentimental collection of old suitcases. Lorenz is the junket, a one-man band who strums a guitar while sitting at a large contraption of homemade and traditional instruments. He's not exactly sure how to describe the musical style of The Suitcase Junket, though he tries. I call it Swamp Yankee music. The swamp being a place, he says, where some things go to decompose and other things come to life. His music has hints of southern rock and soul, as might be played by what he calls a northern swamp person. Sort of like independent, a little bit grumpy, but, you know, throws a good party. You know, like likes, likes people around a couple times a year, or, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm just describing myself. Even so, he does write a lot about relationships, including in his new song, Everything I Like. Everything I like, like a lot of songs, it ends up having sort of themes of love and not being able to communicate with the, the person you love and this sort of like confusion and mystification that is people knowing each other. These days, he spends a lot of time alone. At first, becoming a one-man band was a financial decision. It was expensive to pay travel costs for a full band. Then he grew to like performing solo. I think it helped me grow as a musician and a performer a lot faster, having no one to lean on, you know, having being up there. Okay, you have to tune right now. Are you going to say something? 
best try to make it, you know, interesting or humorous or something. And also that idea that partway through a song you could decide to play it differently. And, you know, you wouldn't have a band, you know, <laughs> throwing their hands in the air. Like, well, what's, what's this guy up to again? All right, you were so All right, you were later. I make you feel good in it. I make you feel better. I show you my weakness. I show you my weakness. One challenge of a one-man band is not coming across as a gimmick. It's like, it's hokey. Just sometimes it just saying one man band, you're like, it make it can you can see people cringe a little bit. The reason it has that reputation is because you get people who don't they aren't necessarily saying anything. They're just making a bunch of noise, and fair enough. I you know like to think that I'm saying things as well as making a bunch of noise. And sometimes, for what he calls a musical palate cleanser, He'll step out from behind his contraption and play acoustic guitar. He'll often close the night with an Irish-style ballad he wrote, Red Flannel Rose. I was cold and I was hungry, I was feeling pretty good. And the fabric of the place was just starting to show. That's when I met her, my red flannel rose. And it's a, a really nice moment because it is this kind of everything is is stripped away you know it's like and then there's also just a song in a room matt lorenz the suitcase junket is touring with his new album mean dog trampoline until next february when he takes a break for maple syrup season for the New England News Collaborative, I'm Karen Brown. As a reminder, if you know about great New England music that you'd like to have featured on Next, drop us a line at next at ctpublic.org. We've got a Spotify playlist of some of the artists you've already sent us. You can check it out at nextnewengland.org. This week, we featured music by Todd Merrill, Goodnight Blue Moon, Binger and Dave Richardson. If you usually find our show on air but want to hear it anytime, just search for Next New England wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is produced by Lily Tyson. The digital producer is Carlos Mejia. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Mike Garth and Stu Rushfield. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Public Radio. 